Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and I'm glad you're here. So because this week is the week of a holiday in the U.S. and many other parts of the world, we are only going to be releasing one episode of Fraudology this week and next week, and it'll be fraud news that is somehow pertainable to e-commerce and to your lives that I think uh, are beneficial for fraud fighters to know. And then as anyone who has listened to those past episodes know, I also dive into why it matters and what you can do about it. So for today, the topics that I have selected, one is just kind of a boots on the ground recap of some of the conversations I've had most recently with e-commerce retailers and merchants and other verticals around different types of fraud that they're seeing and experiencing and questions, etc. So I will definitely be diving into that. We also are going to discuss more headlines about companies that are blocking fintechs and neobanks specifically for the reason of fraud. And then also the CFPB, the Consumer Federal Protection Bureau in the U.S., has opened inquiries into five buy now pay later firms. And we'll talk about what that means or what that could mean to retailers that are accepting BNPL, as well as what it's going to mean for these BNPLs as well. It doesn't. And I will say up front that just because the CFPB was referred by Congress to or the Senate to look into this further doesn't mean anyone's done anything wrong. It's just they're trying to understand this new business model about two to three years after it has entered the e-commerce market. But. It's very popular, and so now they're looking into it. With that, we'll get started on my boots-on-the-ground conversations that I have had the last few weeks. First, as I mentioned on the previous Fraud News episode, I'm trying to remember when that was, but I think it was the week before last, I talked about how SIFT released a study that account takeovers were especially high during the weekend of Thanksgiving. And I ended up talking to a few of the companies that were included in that data, and they shared with me and a few other retailers on the retailer call that they really saw this on Thanksgiving Day. They believe that there was several fraudsters that were just trying to confirm if the accounts belonged, like if the passwords that they had obtained to the accounts worked. And they were doing credential stuffing as well. So checking multiple passwords for each account or matching accounts to passwords, oftentimes with bots on Thanksgiving, hoping that no one was looking at the account traffic. And for some companies, they don't. Some companies don't even keep logs of who of account logins. And so they don't know how many times a password was tried on an account before it was accessed. That is something that I would highly recommend that your company log and it may not be with the fraud team it could be with information security but just double check that that's something your company does if you have accounts because it is very helpful 
to know it's a very good indicator. If somebody has tried 32 different passwords on an account before opening it, chances are that wasn't their account. That's not always going to be the case. Sometimes bots will, you know, have the correct username and password. But oftentimes you can tell it's a bot because of the session time, because it's so quick, because they know exactly which pages to go to and how to fill it out because it's a bot. And the time in between checking accounts is so short. It's impossible for a human to log into an account that quickly. So those are some indicators you can look at. But one of the reasons I bring it up is because Christmas is coming up and it is a Saturday this year. And so it is entirely possible that these same fraudsters are going to use the same methodology they did in Thanksgiving. And oftentimes what happens, and I'm having a very large merchant come in the beginning of the new year, hopefully in Q1, I'm having to do a little bit of a dance with their PR and communications teams. But to talk about some of the studies they've done on account takeovers, but in the conversation he and I had about talking on the podcast, he was sharing, and I'm not going to share the stats because I don't remember them offhand and they're written down somewhere and they're not mine to share, but I know that they were looking at the activity around fraudulent logins for account takeovers. And oftentimes they would see one login of a different device very quickly just to see if they have access to the account. And then a month, two months, three months, sometimes six months down the road, they see someone else, a different device in a different area, logging into their website on that account that was already compromised, but no action happened. Several months later, that's when the monetization of that account will occur, whether it's on the stored payment method, whether it's on a, adding a fraudulent payment method, whether it's draining all of the loyalty points or other activities that are done on accounts, you know, when they're taken over. So I think it's important to know that even if you don't see fraudulent transactions, there could still right away, there still could be nefarious things going on in account takeover. I know some companies that are looking at that and calling it peaking or other terms when a bot or a human just logs into an account, verifies they have the account. Sometimes they'll see if there's account credits on there or loyalty points, et cetera. And then they will close it and then they'll go advertise it for sale and then someone else monetizes it. So some companies, when they see any kind of different login are then sending notice to the user requiring a password reset. Sometimes password resets work. Other times they just reset it back to the same password. I, That's a whole study that another merchant I know did several years ago where they tried to make it, they had, you know, 10, you couldn't use the same password for 10 times. And they had a fair amount of their customers that changed their password 10 times. And the 11th time they changed it back to the same password it was that was compromised. So sometimes password resets work, other times not so much. Moving on from ATOs, last week I got the opportunity to speak to a pretty large fintech company that is well known on and provide them with a training session for about an hour and a half. And I enjoy that so much. I think it's really great when e-commerce companies reach out to me and ask to bring me in to share a 10,000 foot view of what other similar companies are facing or what they should maybe think about, uh, what I'm seeing fraudsters talk about them in various channels that I look at on a regular basis in social media and other uh, platforms. So I got to do that and it was a lot of fun, fun in the nerdiest way. I 
always appreciate fraud fighters who can have a sense of humor. And one of the topics was around mules, whether it's reshipping mules or money, money laundering mules, etc. And someone put in the chat that they feel like they're often playing whack-a-mule instead of whack-a-mole. And I thought that was cute and clever. So wanted to share. <laughs> to anyone that's listening that what works for that company, I really appreciated you having me come in and you guys were all just really great and it was a really good dynamic and conversation even though it was virtual so that was a lot of fun additionally last week i received from a client of mine who often gets access to the fraudster side of information so sometimes it's public information and various dark web sources other times they have access to fraudster data storage I'm purposely being vague, but it can come into, there are several different use cases where their information is so valuable. Oftentimes they'll work with banks and provide them with credit card numbers that are already, that are compromised, but haven't yet been sold so that those banks can flag the card numbers and know that they're compromised. So if they see that and risky behavior, they can prevent the transactions. But in this case, they uncovered a pretty significant database of reshipping mules. And this is some reshipping mules are something that physical goods retailers will experience. And they've been around for over 10 years. It's a preferred form of fraud, often for Eastern European crime rings or you know, organized crime, as well as a couple of different countries in Asia also will participate in it, though primarily you'll see it from Eastern Europe. And essentially, the reason for reshipping mules is that oftentimes if retailers, and this primarily is targeting U.S. retailers, if retailers see that the high expensive items are being shipped overseas to Eastern Europe, for example, or Asia, but the credit card is from the U.S., that's going to be very suspicious. Additionally, some retailers don't ship from the U.S. to those countries. So instead, fraudsters have discovered, well, we need people in the U.S. to accept our packages and then just put them in another box and ship it to us directly overseas. Sometimes they ship it to a freight forwarder in the U.S. that specializes in sending packages to specific countries, but just for ease of explanation, we'll just say that the consumer in the U.S. that's receiving the package is reshipping it and sending it to that organized crime ring in the other country. Sometimes these reshipping mules, the U.S. consumers, sometimes they know what's going on. Sometimes they're a willing participant. I've actually seen a few ads in some Telegram groups offering to pay a flat fee to anyone who's willing to accept packages. And sometimes they have them in specific cities because they want to match the payment method, whether it's a, a taken over account or credit card to the billing of the shipping address like fairly close so if they have credit cards with billing addresses in new york they may ask for people who have residential addresses in new york to accept packages for a couple of weeks other times reshipping mules are not they don't know they're unwitting they will sign up for a work from home scam or it'll be a romance scam where you know, oftentimes the man will say, oh, you know what? I, you know, of course they always represent as they're very wealthy and I can't ship packages to my home country because such and such retailer won't ship to me. But can you just, can I ship it to your address and then you can send it off to me? 
I'll pay for everything. Oftentimes, reshippers don't get paid for the pa- the shipping if they're unwitting, especially. But it really varies. Some of them will continue to do it because they don't want them to go to the police. But I will say that most reshippers will only have an active reshipping address for about two weeks because they understand that merchants often most merchants are involved in a consortium of sorts, whether it's through their fraud provider or a separate one outside of that, like Identic or CentiLink, things like that. CentiLink's on the bank side, Identic's on the merchant side, but then also almost all core fraud prevention systems in e-commerce have a consortium model where if one merchant experiences fraud and gets a chargeback or some kind of confirmed fraud, at a specific address, email, name, etc., they can mark all of that as fraud so that when that person places an order at a different retailer, they can at least know that another retailer marked them as fraud. They may still allow it, but they at least have that information. So because of that, those addresses aren't going to last as long. But my client or this company that I work with sometimes, this you know solution provider that I often will like refer or recommend to in certain situations, They reached out to me and said they'd found this database of several hundred residential addresses in the U.S. being used for reshipping, mostly by Eastern European crime syndicates. And they had name, address, items that were ordered, the retailer that was being targeted, and the tracking number, as well as the start date and end date, because again, they can really only use that address for a little while. So fraudsters have to keep track of these things so they know where their, in quotation marks, products are. So they have spreadsheets and databases of all this information. And this company obtained it and they wanted to give these merchants a heads up. So I am grateful that in the list of about 30 retailers, I knew over half of them. So uh, several of you that are listening probably got an email from me last week saying, you guys were on a form of a naughty list. And I'd like to give you a heads up. Uh, Some of the items were still in transit. So the hope was that they'd be able to uh, salvage them and be able to contact their shipping carrier and ask for a reroute back to their warehouse. In other cases, the products had already been delivered. But at the very least, the merchant could mark all of that as fraud so that connected accounts couldn't get couldn't place orders. So that was my good deed for the week, so to speak. But that is uh, just another reason why I am so grateful for my networks that I was able to help in that way. Additionally, the other things I was just going to mention were that Grinch bots are alive and well on. And I talked about that a few episodes ago, and I think Grinch bots is in the title. So if you want to know more about that, it's there. But on anything that is limited edition or special release, whether it's sneakers or event ticketing or anything like that. There's a lot of collaborations that happen on social media. Those get hit with bots. Just anything that's limited edition, it's definitely increasing. As well as continual increases in INRs, inventory not received claims, empty box claims, manipulating shipping labels. At the warehouse, I am going to be at least in planning on doing the refund fraud workshop again and offering it in February. So uh, be sure to let me know if you would like to be on the waiting list for that and contacted when it comes out. I will tell you that the 20 plus retailers that participated in the one in September have provided me with 
some really incredible feedback and it's it was very helpful to them to really understand how they were being targeted and what they could put in place to be able to reduce this impact of refund fraud. Moving on to the second topic, more headlines about banks and fintechs blocking other banks and fintechs, essentially. So, well, last week is about retailers. So last week I mentioned, oh, actually, I think it was the week before last. I mentioned how some hotels and rental car companies were no longer allowing payments from some of the newer banks. They're referred to as neobanks or digital banks, and they were citing fraud as the reason. And you can go back and listen to that for like all the details. But on a similar note, uh, Robinhood, the investment app that says that they have about 20 million users, has uh, let their users know that there is a long list. And it is pretty long. So I guess Robinhood didn't call it a long list, but I'm calling it a long list. There is a list of financial institutions that they're no longer going to accept debit, uh, ACH debit transactions from to fund the stock purchases. And a lot of them are digital banks, newer banks, or have relationships with digital banks and newer banks. For instance, they may be their sponsor bank. There are a few that surprise me, but not necessarily. And their reasoning was for fraud. And I haven't talked to anyone at Robinhood recently, so I don't know the specifics. And even if I did, I wouldn't and couldn't say. But what I do know from companies that rely on ACH is that there are a lot of risks with ACH rejects and ACH returns. ACH returns aren't as common. They're kind of similar to chargebacks. They aren't as common. So that's why a lot of merchants like it because there isn't, there aren't as many reason codes in there and it's much harder on consumers to file them than chargebacks on credit cards. But on the flip side, there isn't an instant authorization process. There isn't the process in, as there is in a payment card or a credit card where the merchant can automatically reserve those funds for about three to five days. And then once the product has been shipped or once the service has been provided, then the merchant can settle the transaction, which moves the money from the consumer's bank to the merchant's bank through their payment processor. Well, in ACH, it's much slower. So it can often take two days to get an authorization. And so oftentimes retailers will float the funds or I, I, I don't know if that's what Robin Hood's doing. I've worked with a handful of clients that have had ACH and I've worked with them on ACH fraud. And there are products that can help you know that the person is matched, relates to that bank account. In some cases, you can even know how much money's in there or at least if there's enough money to cover what they want. But those products can be fairly expensive and can be challenging to implement in some cases. So there's two core products that I usually uh, will refer to companies for that, for bank account verification. But I am sure there's probably a couple others as well. But essentially, Robinhood has identified a high volume of fraud with specific banks. And I don't know if it's non-sufficient funds on ACH rejects and that's what they're worried the what that's what they're experiencing and that's what they're trying to prevent or if it's also bank account fraud and theft and and all of that so there's various different state reasons why this could be but I just find it really interesting and I think this is going to be a continued trend and I kind of started talking about this on the previous fraud news episode where this ecosystem 
does rely on trust. As much as we've tried to verify with authorizations and with, you know, merchant IDs and other pieces of information within the payments ecosystem, whether you're the card brand, you're an issuing bank, you're a merchant processor, you're a retailer, you're a consumer, all of those pieces, they're all relying on each other to do their job within fraud and risk and underwriting and KYC. And when one piece of the ecosystem doesn't feel like another piece of the ecosystem is doing their job as well as they should be, or they're having to take the liability on something that this other entity is disproportionately having higher volume of than other entities within what that, you know, piece of the ecosystem is doing. So if it's a merchant processor, maybe they're, you know, looking at only a small subset or they're looking at all their merchants and realizing only 10% are really risky. Or maybe it's a bank that's looking at, you know, these other other neo banks and they're seeing transfers and they're like, wait, all the transfers from, you know, 78 of our banks that we work with or whatever the number is, 78%, 90%, whatever that is, are fine. They have a fairly low percentage of fraud. But then when we look at these, this 10% of banks, they have significant amounts of fraud and there's nothing we can do about their fraud processes, but we're impacted by it. So we're going to block it. Now, there are rules in place within the ecosystem for not allowing blocking. So I don't know how that's going to play out. It'll be very interesting to see how the card brands and other banking associations react to it. But I do think that as a member of the ecosystem, it's important to do your part. And as I mentioned on the previous episode, and I think this is begs for a longer article that I'd like to write sometime soon, is that, you know, fintechs are <laughs> a lot of them that are venture backed one of the number or the number one indicator of their value and their valuation is growth. So when you have that as the focus of the majority of a company, and that is the number one driver because you're trying to increase the valuation of your company for stocks and everything else, well, fraud can be a direct conflict of interest in that. And fraudsters are also some of the first users and early adopters of fintech and other banks, et cetera. And so you can have a real mess on your hands if you're not being diligent on fraud. If you're trying to just focus on opening up as many accounts as possible and not wanting to close them, not wanting to do the fraud risk at account signup, this can cause a myriad and a waterfall of issues not just within your own company, but with other companies within the ecosystem as well. And it's something I have seen really impact a lot of different companies these days. Anyone in the ecosystem, it's impacting in different ways. But I think that in 2022, we're going to see this come to a head. The fact that there's been several articles recently about this and then now going into a new year, I think this is going to be a continued trend. And I don't know if many people are talking about the fact that this is really, I think personally, at least that there's a conflict between growth and the focus on growth and not necessarily the focus on quality, right? So you're focusing on quantity for your valuation of your company, but the job of a fraud and a risk and a KYC and an AML team is to really only let the quality in and that 
can have a lot. Oftentimes, the bigger group and, you know, the top line revenue wins within an organization. Maybe, just maybe, with some of these headlines, it will give fraud departments the leverage to say, hey, I want to watch out for our company and I don't want our bank or brand or wherever you fit in the ecosystem to be impacted by this. And so it is our job to make sure that we are really paying attention to account creation and only giving keys to the kingdom to the people that exist and that are going to be you know, good faith actors in our ecosystem and within our platform as opposed to bad actors. So that is my soapbox. I will try to step off of it. However, that also kind of applies to the last and final headline I wanted to share with you guys today. And that is that it was announced last week, I believe on Friday afternoon of all things, that the CFPB, the Consumer uh, Finance, uh, is it Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or federal? I think it might be Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Sorry if I misstated that earlier. There's a title in payments, payments.com, which is spelled P-Y-M-T-S dot com. So no vowels. Merchant policies could come under CFPB scrutiny as part of the BNPL inquiry. So there's a few acronyms in there, but BNPL is buy now, pay later. If you shop online at all, or if you are in e-commerce, you're very aware of BNPL because oftentimes as a consumer, you're looking at a website and when you're at the checkout page, it'll say the total and it'll, or it'll, and then it'll say, or it would just be this much across four payments. That's what the majority of them do. Some of them have various terms, but that's the most simplified example. The CFPB is looking into the issuance. So who are they issuing this alternative credit to? What are the refund policies? What are the fee policies of buy now, pay later brands? Uh, asking them to show that their terms don't let consumers get in too deep on, on alternative credit without knowing potential risks. It kind of reminds me of several years ago, the CFPB, and this is all within the U.S., but required credit card companies to show how much a person would be paying in total if they just did the minimum amount, the minimum payment until it was paid off. And just to show the impact of what can happen if you're not paying your bill off right away. It kind of runs me that, right? So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is really created to help consumers. So, of course, they're going to be looking into it. I think they're looking into it because they've gotten really, really popular and there's not a ton of regulation and oversight into it yet. And so this could be a sign of things to come. The companies that are named or really called out include Klarna, Affirm, Afterpay, PayPal, Pay and For, and Zip. It doesn't mean that any of these companies have done anything wrong. It just means, if anything, that they're doing things right by their company and their shareholders by getting so big and popular. And that Congress, as well as the CFPB, would like to better understand the terms and how this impacts consumers. They have concerns around loan stacking. So how can they prevent consumers from, you know, opening up several different BNPL accounts. One article I read compared by now pay later to layaway. The only difference is you get the item right away and then you pay in installments after. So there are definitely risks for those companies as well. How they're using indirect by now pay later data collection and, and what's happening with that for user data, as well as fee structure, terms, refunds, etc. Like I said, one issue is around return policies and most 
of these return policies say that they're dependent on merchant policies. And I would say that I did work with one buy now, pay later firm that is currently overseas. They may come into the U.S. soon, but and I worked with them on creating their terms and conditions, especially around chargebacks and disputes and returns. And that really was the most logical way from the buy now, pay later perspective to deal with them because each retailer has their own return policies. And so oftentimes the buy now, pay later firm will say, well, if you want to return the item, you need to return it to the merchant. And then the merchant will let us know and we'll either refund you and we'll clean out your debt or we'll do a credit towards, you know, future payments or whatever it is. But the payment method is separate from the retailer. And so just like if you made a payment on a credit card, the credit card company, well, they should be directing you to the merchant to get a re return. We do know that some of them make chargebacks very easily, but that or make chargebacks very easy to file. But in theory, they'll say, we'll go to the merchant because they're the ones that you did business with. And so that's essentially what the BNPLs are doing as well. It makes sense from their perspective. However, there's a lot of challenges in that relationship. Uh, and it does make me wonder, and, and in this article on payments.com, they also were kind of, I think this is what they were inferring, was that now the scrutiny could be on merchant returns and merchant refund policies if that's who the BNPLs are you know, deferring to. My issue with alternative payments and refunds is return fraud. When a consumer is purposely and intentionally, systematically, when they made the purchase, they intended on claiming that something happened to it to get a refund without ever returning the merchandise. So I've talked about this on many other episodes, but essentially the easiest thing to claim is, oh, I didn't get it. There are several different things that companies are putting into place, and I'm working with a few of them on this and having a lot of fun. With trial, well, they're not so much error, but putting things in place. And I wonder if this would work. And it does. And that's always a fun thing. But there are things that you can put in place to reduce INRs and, and DNRs. And then there are other, then they'll move on to claiming that they got an empty box. And then they'll claim, then they'll move on to manipulating a tracking number and sending it back. Well, what I'm seeing with some of these alternative payment methods is that the consumer or the customer, the fraudster, really the return fraudster will provide a tracking number to the alternative payment method and say, see, I returned it to their warehouse. And the merchant may have said, hey, we're not going to provide this return or this refund to you because we never got the product. You are claiming that you did, but we've done all this research and we can tell that the tracking number has been manipulated or we never actually got that you know, item or whatever the situation is. But then by the customer providing it to the alternative payment method, then the alternative payment method issues them a refund and debits the, the merchant. So it, it has become a workaround for some refunders to do that. And BNPL is being used in that way as well. So that is something I would want to make sure. I mean, if I was asked by the CFPB, I would say you need to allow merchants to have discretion on returns and refunds. And then on the flip side, I would advise retailers to make sure that your terms and conditions allow you to have discretion when issuing refunds and have some clear cut policies. Whatever those may be, I, you know, if you hire a consultant that helps you create those policies and processes, I can definitely help you with that verbiage. Uh, 
I like never plug my services. And that wasn't meant as a plug. It was just, I'm not going to go into full detail about exactly what to say on terms and conditions. If A, I don't know what your process would be. And B, sometimes I have to keep some kind of a paywall up. So anyway, <laughs> but that's where I think, you know, more focus needs to be on. But additional issues I've seen, you know, for BNPLs on the fraud side include, you know, I did an, an episode on episode 29. I even looked it up before I recorded this one. Talking about how BNPL can be used as a side door for fraud. If you are a retailer that accepts buy now, pay later methods, I'd encourage you to listen to the episode if you didn't already. I learned about this from several really reputable retailers that were starting to see this. And I know at least one very popular BNPL, I may or may not have said their name just a few minutes ago, listened to it right away and, and didn't realize that they were being used in that way. So it was really helpful for them. But also, I actually was just talking to a merchant maybe for three hours on a Sunday yesterday. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of you guys are my friends, so I can't help that. Uh, but one of the things that came up was that they, so their company has e-commerce as well as in-store, you know, they're a multi-channel retailer, and they're seeing uh, a lot more, a huge spike in in-store fraud using buy now, pay later. So they're seeing that there's not a lot of authenticating and risk decisions made at the account level. This goes right back to what I was just talking about on my soapbox like five or 10 minutes ago. But that is this retailer was saying the BNPL that we use is not it doesn't appear that they're doing anything at the account level. So once somebody can get an account with this buy now pay later firm, they can do anything with it. And they're realizing when they make a transaction online, that transaction is scrutinized for fraud. They're looking at fraud at the transaction level, not the account level. But if they have fraudulent behavior in store, there's not a lot that can be done there because it's not the same process. They don't have as much data about the actual person making the purchase. So it's happening a lot and it's really impacting. I mean, there's it's not like frontline workers have been trained on this stuff. And oftentimes, you know, when the retailer was digging into this a little more to try to understand what was happening, they noticed that in some, a lot of cases, the name on the card didn't even match the name on the account. Sometimes they would see a person trying like eight different credit cards on one BNPL account. And they, for whatever reason, on their setup with this BNPL, they can see the funding instrument that's attached to it. And so they're realizing, wait, they had six funding instruments on this account and they just signed up yesterday and they're all with different names. Why were they able to make a purchase in store and be able to, you know, charge, have a four payment or five payment, whatever the terms are, repayment system, it's not going to pay off. The other thing I've heard from BNPLs is that they don't feel like they have a lot of transaction risk, but they do have a lot of charge offs and they see it as a first party or friendly fraud, you know, situation. And I think that that is entirely possible. But I also think there's another half of that coin that uh, one of the first people that I'm going to interview in January, I've already done the first half of the interview, so I know it's going to be really good, is someone who is on the fintech side of fraud and is really seeing a lot of trends. And one of the trends they're seeing is that accounts that appear to be first party fraud and, fra and friendly fraud, and it just looks like they you know, they got an account, 
and then they just couldn't pay make the payments. What they're now noticing when they really dive into that account kind of in a post-mortem way, they realize that those accounts were identity theft and or well and or uh, synthetic fraud. So they didn't actually belong. The person whose information was used wasn't the one that opened the account. And so I think when you're moving fast, when you're at scale, when you're confident that your KYC processes are in order, you may just assume that it's all first party fraud. But I'd be curious to know as you dive in and, and look at it and kind of reverse engineer the information if your decision would change. That is what I've been been hearing from that side. So that is an interview to definitely look forward to in the beginning of uh, January. But I wanted to share with you guys all of this so that you can be aware of it in the new year. Fraud is never going to go away. It's always going to continually regenerate and adapt to what we put in place. And so it is really important to have a strong ecosystem and for every player within the ecosystem of payments whether it's credit card payments or ACH payments or buy now, pay later payments or whatever the, the payment method is that we all trust each other. And I think those are my final parting words this holiday week. And I, whether you celebrate these holidays this week or not, I really hope that you and your families are doing well. I appreciate everyone that listens to this podcast so, so much and always enjoy getting your notes and I try to reply whenever I can. And I will look forward to speaking with you next week.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.